welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. We've continued our series called Eat This Book. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, you're going to need one today. There are some back here. If you have your phones, you can get it on there. Um, so eat this book, and if you remember, we've kind of been looking at this timeline, so if you're wondering what this is, this is our, our timeline, and the purpose of this, remember, is we always want to root what we're doing in, in um, kind of a conceptual picture of like, where is the scripture taking us, or where are we in the story? A lot of pages written a long time ago, gets confusing really fast, really easy, so always wanting to kind of see where are we and what's God doing in this, so if you, just by way of review, um, we started, of course, in Genesis, in the beginning. That's <laughs> a baseball joke. <laughs> the Yankees are out, though, so that's cool. All right. So creation, obviously, is the beginning. Uh, the, great, you know, the deception of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, chapters 4 through 11 of Genesis is this kind of humans going their own way, trying all kinds of different crazy things. Um, of course, we get Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and that's kind of the book of Genesis. Exodus begins with the, Egyptian, or with the Israelites in Egypt, in exile. And of course, this is the story of Moses coming and freeing the people from, uh, you know, Prince of Egypt, the whole deal, movie and everything. Uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is really kind of where we spent the last two weeks. This is the giving of the law. And what does it mean for God's people to be a group of people in the world living a particular way over and against the others, their neighboring friends and tribes and whatnot? That'll play into today a little bit. And then, of course, at the beginning of the book of Joshua, we get the death of Moses and Joshua's kind of uh, entry into the land. So God promised Abraham, I'm going to make you a nation. We'll bless you so that you'll bless the world. I'll give you a land. And so this is where we're at in the story. Now, um, if you would turn to Deuteronomy chapter 20, I'm going to read three different passages as we begin here this morning, because uh, if you follow the Awakened Twitter feed or saw anything on Facebook this week, I posted something about like, hey, you know, uh, easy peasy Japanesey, we're doing, uh, gen- we're doing genocide in the scriptures this week, it's going to be no sweat. Uh, this is a seriously difficult topic and conversation that we're about to jump into. Uh, I want to read three pieces, Deuteronomy, uh, a section from the book of Joshua, and a section from the book of Judges. And I want you to listen, okay? Listen to what God is doing. Listen to what God is saying. Listen to what Joshua is saying and what's happened and the people it's happening to. And then listen to what the book of Judges says about what Joshua did, all right? So that's kind of what we're going to do. This is Deuteronomy chapter 20, starting in verse 16, says this. However, in the cities, the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things that they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. Now turn to Joshua, one book over, or done. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, Joshua chapter 10, and we'll start in verse 39. It says this. They being being the Israelites took the city, its king and its villages, and they put them to the sword, which is code word for they killed them. Everyone in it, they totally destroyed. They left no survivors. Now listen to the people. They did it to Debir and its king. They had done it to Libna and uh, and its king and to Hebron. Now move to Joshua 11, verses 21 and 22. At that time, Joshua went and destroyed, listen to the people, the Anakites from the hill country, from Hebron, Debir, and Anab, from the hill country of Judah, from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua totally destroyed them and their towns. No Anakites were left in Israel 
uh, Israelite territory. Now, jump to Judges chapter 1. One book over to the right. Judges chapter 1, starting in verse 9, says this. Now, pay attention to who we're talking about. After that, Judah went down to fight against who? The Canaanites. Oh, by the way, I should say, Joshua 1 starts with, after the death of Joshua. Okay, you following the timeline? What we just read in Joshua was what happened in Joshua. Joshua dies. Now the, judge, the book of Judges tells the story of after Joshua dies. Verse 9, after that, Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites, living in the hill country where of the Negev and the western foothills. Uh, they advanced against the Canaanites living in Hebron and defeated Sheshai, uh, Ahimon, and Talmai. From there, they advanced against the people living in where? Debir, formerly called whatever it's formerly called, I can't pronounce that. Uh, skip to verse 17. Then the men of Judah went to the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, and attacked who? The Canaanites living in Zephath, and they totally destroyed the city. Therefore, it was called Hormah. Judah also took Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron, each city with its own territory. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive out, drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron, Moses had promised Hebron was given to Caleb, who drove it from who? The three sons of Anak, the Anakites. My grandpa, who I love dearly, at this point would say, Hello, Joe, got a problem. Right? <laughs> I think that's pretty funny. Ah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. Two problems emerge here, friends. Thank you. Thank you. Pray for me. <laughs> Two problems emerge here. Number one, God, Yahweh, condones and explicitly commands the people of Israel to kill. This is also called genocide. All of the people that inhabit the land and list them. The people who are neighbors of the land if they come peacefully, make treaties with them. If they don't, kill them also. Problem number one, right? We have a God who commands, condones, is implicitly and explicitly involved in, let's call it what it is, genocide. Problem number two, the text isn't even consistent, right? In the book of Joshua, chapters 1 to 12, it tells the story of how the Israelites annihilated, destroyed, left nothing in their wake. Right? These are the Canaanite people. What are they being judged for in Judges chapter 1? Intermarrying, worshiping with who? The Canaanites! <laughs> so, lots going on here. Lots going on here. Now, I recognize that what I'm about to do and what we're about to embark on should not be done in 30 minutes. Anybody who thinks that they can sum up the book of Joshua and sort of the Joshua, you know, Israel taking the land in 30 minutes is lying to you. You should probably run far away. It's not simple. And it's not, well, the Bible says it. I'll get to that. And I'm going to, as lovingly as I possibly can, try to provide a different option for us. Um, so what I want to do today is peel back the curtains a little bit and give you a look at the process. For me, um, you're going to leave. You're going to leave today, and I'm guessing. And again, we kind of start with the assumption at Awaken that what happens here when we gather and when someone teaches and we look at the word is that this is not the final word. This is hopefully the beginning of a conversation that propels you, you know, provokes you, invites you to think more deeply about what does it mean to follow God and to be a person of, of God in the world, to all of these things. 
So today is, is, uh, is like the poster child for that idea. You'll probably leave today with more questions than you came in with. Uh, that's not... Uh, uh, that's just the nature of what this is. And I almost didn't teach this. I thought to myself, dude, you're crazy to tackle this one. Like, what are you thinking? Uh, I thought about, let's do J- you know, Joshua crossing the Jordan. Looks like Moses, sounds like Moses, the river, the whole deal. It's like Exodus all over again, lots going on there. And then I thought, you know what? If I skip this, people will be like, bro, seriously, come on. Joshua, conquest, Canaan, you got to. So here we go. Um, so I want to I I just try to give you some of the process for me. When I, look, when I come to a text like this, um, how do I approach it? What are the questions I'm asking? Um, and, and is there a way forward when we reach a text like this? Because this one is seriously problematic um, and for a lot of different reasons. And, and there's a couple of concentric circles I want to lay out before we jump in. One is the center. And this is what we try to keep at the center to, as best that we possibly can at Awaken. And this is Jesus. In Jesus, we find life. In Jesus, we are redefined. In Jesus, we are new creations. In Jesus, we, we, we gain our life and our significance. It's Jesus who speaks that to us. What does it mean to be a person in the world? What does it mean to be a person of God in the world? What does it mean to love my neighbor? What does, this is, we find life in Jesus. That's the first one. Outside of that would be maybe the classic dogma of the Christian faith. These are things that are important to what does it mean to be a Christian? The idea of God revealing God's self as a Trinitarian being, Father, Son, and Spirit. God sends the Son. The Spirit empowers the Son. The Son does something for us on our behalf on the cross. Um, The fact that the Bible is the inspiration of God and it's given to us authoritatively for our life together as the people of God. These are dogma. These are important things at the center of the faith. Doctrine would be like the next outset or the next circle. These are maybe second degree kind of differences between Christians across the spectrum. So on one hand, you might have people who believe this about how the end times will go down. And on the other hand, both Bible-believing, Jesus-following people, they might believe something else. You might have a group over here that thinks this is how women's roles should look in the church and another group over here, this is how women's roles, that's doctrine. Outside of that is the realm of opinion and that's exactly what you're getting today, okay? I want to be totally clear with you that what I'm sharing with you is my wrestling with the text. You do not have to agree with this, okay? I start with some assumptions that you may not agree with. Um, I make no secret that I'm not a huge reformed theological guy. I, uh, there's, and people ask me, like, why are you so down on Augustine and what's your bone to pick with Calvin and even Piper at times? This issue, this issue in particular for me is like grinding the gears. There is like a device, there's a, de- like, I cannot make sense of it from that, those assumptions and those categories. Calvin says this about this text. The indiscriminate and promiscuous slaughter of the Canaanites, making no distinction of age or sex, but including alike women and children and the aged and the decrepit, might seem an inhuman massacre had it not been executed by the command of God. But as he, in whose hands are life and death, had justly doomed those nations to destruction, this puts an end to all discussion. Um, got to be honest, I want to start as far away from that as I possibly can. That's just me, okay? This is how I've, some assumptions that I bring to the text. So I'm laying out my cards, and I want you to, I want you to know, like, what I'm saying is not, like, thus saith the Lord, not even thus saith awaken, not even, this is my wrestling with the text, okay? So just, if you're going to shoot anybody, shoot me, okay? Here we go. 
Two problems with the text as we read it. Number one, God condones, commands, implicitly, explicitly participates in genocide. Uh, This has been a major stumbling block for many people across the spectrum, those of faith and those not of faith. Uh, Richard Dawkins, many of you might know, he wrote a book called The God Delusion. Outspoken Atheist says this about this text. The ethnic cleansing begun in the time of Moses is brought to bloody fruition in the book of Joshua, a text remarkable for its bloodthirsty massacres that it records and xenophobic relish in which it does so. As the, he's got a great vocabulary. As the charming old song exultantly has it, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, the walls came a-tumbling down. Can anyone hear their grandpa singing right now? Joshua bid the battle of Jericho. He literally used to sing that to us. Not kidding you. None like good old Joshua at the battle of Jericho. Do not think, by the way, that the God character in the story nursed any doubts or scruples about the massacres and genocides that accompanied the seasoning of the promised land. No, on the contrary. His orders, for example, in Deuteronomy 20, are ruthlessly explicit. Richard Dawkins. One of many who have said the Christian faith is bunk. Because that's there and you believe that about the God that you worship. That's a, criti- that's a criticism of the faith. Got to be honest about that. Problem two, the text isn't even consistent. So we have a hermeneutical and textual question or problem. It's like, how do you transverse that gap? Joshua 1 to 12 says explicitly that these people were annihilated, destroyed. They left none behind. Judges 1 opens and the Israelites are being judged because they're intermarrying the people that they've previously destroyed in Joshua 12. Do you see the problem here? So this idea of the Bible says it, I believe it, that's enough, just doesn't work anymore. And I think we could find a legion number of texts for which that's the case. Many of us uh, come from evangelical backgrounds, and there was this, like, there's this love affair with the scripture. And I, I'm all for that. Don't, don't hear me saying by what we're doing today that I don't value the Bible, that I don't think it's in, inspired by God, or that I don't think it's authoritative for the people of God and their life together. I do. Did you get that on record? I do. But this idea that like it's in the Bible, that's enough. I believe it. Dude, that's dangerous, right? Because when you get that in the hands of, of, of the wrong kind of people, we get some crazy stuff happening. And here's what this leads us to. This, like, the Bible says it, I believe it, that's enough. It leads us to this place where we have to smash together these dissonant, and they are dissonant pictures of God. In the one hand, God, genocide, killing people. Now, one could argue you know, the Canaanites had it coming. They were pagans. They were, you know, all kinds of sinful things going on. They had it coming. Okay, yeah, but he, that's like genocide of all kinds of people. That's craziness. On the other hand, this other picture of God is Jesus hanging on the cross, praying and forgiving those who are killing him and persecuting. Bless your enemies. Pray for them. Two very dissonant views. And this, the Bible says that, that I believe that that's enough. It, it requires you to basically take these two or, or name, you know, fill in the blanks, these views of God and like smash them together. And what we get is, I think, like a schizophrenic view of God. This like sort of bizarre. And when people look in on that and they're like, honestly, <laughs> really? Like that's bonkers. That's crazy. That's crazy talk. In order to affirm the Bible, that it's inspired, that it's God's, you know, revelation in Jesus, the Bible tells the story of, like, in order to affirm that, 
Like we have to smash these things together. And this is scary when it gets in the, the wrong hands of the wrong, or the hands of the wrong people. Here's a, an illustration of this, okay? A, a representative in our democratic system sends an email to his constituents asking them to pray Psalm 109 over our president. If you don't know, Psalm 109 says this, may his prayers become sin. Let his days be few. May another take his office. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children be continual vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread out of desolate places. Let there be none to extend mercy unto them. Neither let there be any favor for his fatherless children. And he ends the email, at least now I can, pr- I can voice a biblical prayer for our president. Look it up. It's word for word, Psalm 109. Let's bow and pray together. Whatever your political views are, whether you like Barack Obama or you don't, that's crazy. And when this, the Bible says it, I believe it, that's enough, gets in the hands of the wrong people, it gets really nasty really quick. So my question for us this morning is, is there another way forward? Is there another way by which we can affirm the God that's revealed to us in Jesus and in the scriptures, Yahweh the creator, and is there a way that we can affirm that the scriptures are inspired, authoritative for the people of God in the world and their life together? Can we do that? Is there another way? And I would like to suggest that there is. May I suggest to you a metaphor of a shadow? Turn to Colossians chapter 2, please. Colossians chapter 2. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. No, General Electric Power, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 say this. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however is found in Christ. Now, for the sake of posterity and footnoting properly, I am borrowing from a theologian and and thinker that I really enjoy, a guy named Greg Boyd. Um, Can I get the lights, please? I made this, by the way, last night at 10.30. I had this brilliant idea. I was like, oh my gosh, I've got it. Thank you very much. For those of you that can't see, here we are. Here we are. Friends over here. Yeah, you got to get the full view. Thank you. It's cute. I appreciate that. I was hoping for, wow, amazing. What is this? Thank you. It is a Pez dispenser. It is. Does anyone recognize the figure? That's, that's, that's correct. It's Woody. This is Woody, the Pez dispenser. What? In the world, does this have to do with theology in Joshua? I would argue everything. (laughs) Allow me to explicate. In order to understand what Paul's doing in Colossians 2, we have to ask the question, what does a shadow do? Or what is the nature of a shadow? Paul is talking to the Colossian church, and these people are under duress. They're under heavy duress. Uh, That's a total tangent, sorry. They're under duress. Trent Tucker, the old uh, Timberwolves announcer. Thank you. Yeah. KG, under heavy duress, underneath the rack. Okay. So, the Colossian church, they're under duress. Franchise going big, TP Terry Porter not being real kind to his old teammates, the Timberwolves. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> the Colossians, the Colossians, they're under duress because there are people 
who think that because they have now said yes to Jesus, who was a part of the Jewish stream of thought and, and religion, that they should be subject to the laws of the Old Testament and the Levitical code that the Jews had been under. Paul says to them, don't let anyone look down and you don't make them make you celebrate this Sabbath day or this deal or that deal. Those things are a shadow. So what is the nature of a shadow? A shadow, friends, reflects the real thing in a sense, but it does so by negation, right? What we see here is a negative outline of our friend Woody the Pez dispenser. Now, uh, this, this shadow captures Woody the Pez dispenser in some ways. And in so many other ways, it completely and utterly falls short of the real thing that is Woody the Pez dispenser. Allow me to share a few of them with you. It's two-dimensional, right? The shadow is only two-dimensional. We know that Woody the Pez dispenser is actually three-dimensional, has height, the whole deal. Uh, it's black and white. We know that Woody the... Well, I know because it's mine. Kids <laughs> that I stole. Uh, I know that Woody the Pez dispenser actually has colors. He has a, a, a lovely, uh, like, blue shirt and a, and a hat and uh and the, the the pez piece it's blue this only gives us black and white woody the real pez dispenser has lovely eyes they're beautiful and he has lovely hair and the the plastic the plastic out of which this pez dispenser was created is just it's it's beautiful and when you touch it it like it's like oh my gosh wow this does not capture that it totally falls short of, of telling us those types of details um, it, doesn't, it doesn't capture the fact that when I set this up, I actually broke off Woody's head, and so it looks more like a bobblehead than it does a Pez dispenser. It doesn't capture it. You don't know that. You only see the negative outline of Woody the Pez dispenser that's now a bobblehead. It doesn't capture the, sm the faint smell of cheap candy, like when you do that to his neck and the Pez comes out. It doesn't capture the smell of the cheap candy that you get from it. It doesn't capture the radiance that is the Pez dispenser named Woody. You see what I'm saying here? Maybe you don't. The shadow is to Woody, the real Woody the Pez dispenser. This is exactly what Paul's doing. The shadow of the Woody is to the real Woody what the Old Testament law is to Jesus. He says that this, it's a shadow. It, it, it gives us an outline. It shows us, it, it's, it, it moves us towards, it helps communicate. It gives an outline, but it's distorted in some ways. The reality, however, is found in Christ. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Bottom line, here's what I'm saying. When we read an Old Testament passage and it doesn't square with the revelation of God in Jesus, I want to suggest to you that we are on very good theological grounds and hermeneutical grounds to be able to say we can affirm its shadow nature, that it looks in some ways to resemble Woody the Pez Dispenser, but we know that it's not actually Woody the Pez Dispenser. And in some cases, we can also be on good ground to say that doesn't even begin to capture the real essence of Woody the Pez Dispenser. And I would argue that a text like Joshua 1 to 12, we could say I, Hebrews, Jesus, Paul, they all talk about Jesus as the exact representation of God. So when I read a text like this, there, there is a, a certain level of authenticity and integrity and maybe even, I would go as far as to say, authority to say, when I read a text like that and, and, and if I say something like, that doesn't sound to me like the heart of God. It sounds like a shadow. It looks like a shadow. In some ways, in some way, somehow, connected to the literary stuff, which I'll 
I'm about to jump into. This communicates something of God, but not the fullness of God. That remains in Jesus and in Jesus alone. The fact that Max said that, totally unplanned, just for us this morning. Uh, you can bring up the lights if you would, Dan. Let me try to explain this in another way. Um, so if you could imagine a missionary couple, and you may have heard this illustration before if you have, bear with me. A missionary couple goes to some far-off land. They, they're about to enter into this tribe, which is like so far from the modern world, it's not even funny. Uh, you all have the picture of National Geographic in your heads? Okay, perfect. Um, so this, tri- this, this particular missionary couple goes into this, this, this people group, and what they find is that when they get there, this people group has been participating in um, essentially a, a version of female circumcision for generations and generations and generations. This is something that they hold very sacred and dear, and it's something that is a part of their culture and their tribalness as a group of people. Now, when the missionaries go and they show up there and they show up to the first, like, you know, potluck, uh, which is, is this ceremony where the, the, the group brings the, the young women before them and, and this happens, what they do is they start throwing foul flags, right? And they're like, stop, stop, stop. No, you cannot do that. You can't, that is inhumane. It's barbaric. We have moved so far beyond that. Uh, you can't, like, that doesn't honor the divine spark and the image of godness that's in that girl. It doesn't honor womanhood. It doesn't honor sexuality. It doesn't honor any of that. You cannot do that. That's what they would do, right? No. A missionary often goes native right? They, they, because what happens if they do that? They're not going to listen. Who, who are you, right? Who, by, by, on what ground, like outsider coming and telling us we, that's, that's not good mission theology. A missionary goes native. They enter the people group. They like participate in their life. They eat their food. They, they become one of them. Good, bad, ugly, indifferent, all of it for the purpose of communicating something that they believe to be true about God and the world and people and all of that. But if they jump in and they say it right away, the message that's so dear and precious to them often will not be heard. They possibly could be shot, run out, the whole deal. Now, we could have an ethical discussion about whether or not they should stand up and say, forget it, can't do that, or whether or not they shouldn't. Bottom, what I'm, the reason I share this illustration is, can I suggest that it's possible that this is the way in which God comes to us? That God enters our world. God enters our situation. God enters the ancient Near East of thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago where things were barbaric. Where it wasn't uncommon for a people group to come to another people group and take them and their land and kill them. That's the situation that God enters. And insofar as the missionaries bear the sin of the people as they sit and go through these things so that they can communicate and reveal their true heart at the right time, I would suggest that this is the story of the scriptures. We see God click by click by click by click by click, moving the people to the point where he says, this, this is what I look like. This is who I am. In the fullness of time, the scripture says, God revealed himself in Jesus. Can I suggest that this idea of a shadow and an outline that gives us some representation of the real thing, but not always the full essence of it, might be one way to look at a text like this and others like it. Let me offer one other thought as I close, because, uh, again, 
peel back the curtains process, okay? For me, as I understand this and I try to make sense of this, this one, this thing's got legs. This thing's cooking for me. Um, so I offer it to you. Uh, lastly, when we read a text like Joshua, we have to, we have to, have to, have to let it speak in its own voice. Because when we don't, it's like genre foul. I don't know where I heard this phrase, but it's a genre foul. When we t- read Joshua, right, which was written by most scholars' estimations between 650 and 550, it goes backwards, right? So 650 and 550 um, B.C., when we read a text like Joshua and we, and we take it from there and we export it to 21st century modern American evangelical, you know, enlightened uh, scientific method, history, facts, reporting, all that kind of stuff, and we read all of that into it, we totally, I would submit, miss the point of what's happening in Joshua. I don't think Joshua cares that in one story, all of the people die, and in the other story, they're still there. I don't think that's the point at all. If it is the point, we have a serious problem. Nobody in Joshua's time wrote like that. Nobody, like just the facts, ma'am, that's us. Give us the facts and get it right. Report it. Don't, don't, don't taint it. Don't add anything to it. Don't subtract anything to it. Don't, that's us. That's our stuff that we bring to the text. We have to let Joshua speak in his own voice. And what that means is that this kind of narrative where a people group who has God on their side, who walks in and sort of dismisses, and in this case, and in many others, kills not just the warriors, right, but men, women, and children, everybody, was not uncommon in Joshua's time frame. I'm not arguing that it's any less barbaric or horrific or bloody or disgusting. I'm not saying any of that. But in that time, if you can wrap your head around it at all, this is normal. Ways in which humans are interacting with one another as it relates to God and their, and their experience of the world together. The idea that a group of people would tell of a, of a military account or a conquest account and that they would add to the numbers, right? We actually know what this is like. Just watch the debates. Uh, you know, we take one grain of truth and then we add some to it, right? Like only a hundred people were killed, but actually, you know what? A thousand people were killed. And it's like, right? Whose is bigger? <laughs> That's kind of what's going on here, right? So it's like this inflation. And if you look outside of the Bible, you can totally find this in other ancient Near Eastern texts where a particular group will say, this is what happened. And actually, other historians will say that no, it was far less than that, and it wasn't quite as grotesque and gruesome and as all encompassing or as eradicatory. <laughs> you get what I'm saying, right? That kind of an account is not abnormal for this time period in literature. Now, we have this whole inspiration thing that comes in and says, like, well, why in the world would God let that happen if God inspired it? Take it up with Him or God, or it, however you work that out. Um, That's a good question. But I want to suggest that when the Hebrew people, of which this book tells the story of, from an ancient Near Eastern culture, in that time frame, it would not be out of the ordinary for them to write an account that is inflammatory or exaggeratory. Okay? Lastly, the the, the writer of Joshua, I would argue, has an agenda has a particular agenda. 
Most scholars would say that Joshua was written between 650 and 550 BC. This is also the time of Josiah. Does anybody remember the story of Josiah from the Old Testament? Josiah was a king of Israel who found a book of the law in the temple. And this particular book of the law basically told, gave Josiah permission to eradicate all of the external extracurricular worship that happened in the high places around the land. And it made everybody come to Jerusalem. Now, if you were the king who had the temple under your control, what would that do for you? Cash, power, right? Okay. So Josiah's whole bit is about the reform of Israel. And this person is writing, most scholars would say that the person who wrote Joshua, Judges, uh, Samuel, and Kings is a person called the Deuteronomistic historian. And this person is trying to explain what happens, what happened to Israel when the temple fell and they were all shipped off to Babylon in exile. So this person's trying to tell what's happening here and make sense of this. And they're using Deuteronomy as a, as, a base, as a base for it. So when this person writes, who's also connected all in the same time frame, that's why I talk about Josiah. Josiah was about this complete and total and utter reform of Israel as a nation and as a people, politically, social, socially, religiously, cultically, not cultically, they're worship, like sacrificing cats, but cultically like the worship of, of the people. Just reform it all and bring it all to Israel and, and, and essentially like wipe out everything that has a bad influence on us, which is why we're in exile and why we're in Babylon. Who would have had a bad influence on us? The Canaanites would. So get rid of them in our literature and the way that we tell the story. Rid, them of the, rid us of them is what essentially Josiah is doing. And I would argue the Deuteronomistic historian is doing. So when we read Joshua and he's like, they're all gone. But then we read in Judges, like actually they're still there. The point isn't, are they or aren't they? It's in the same vein as Josiah's total political, social, religious reform of the land. It's exactly what Joshua is doing as well. I would submit. Here's one small example of what this looks like. If you're going, what in the world? There's a guy. He's the fourth son of Saul. His name is, well, he has two different names depending on which book you read. Because each of the authors had a different point. They had a different purpose. One of them is the Deuteronomistic historian in the book of Samuel, and one of them is the chronicler, you know, First and Second Chronicles. In First and Second Chronicles, this person's name, the fourth son of Saul, his name is Ishbaal. Does anybody recognize Baal? It is the primary god of Canaan. So the, the son of the king of Israel is named Ishbaal, which means man of Baal. So if you're the Deuteronomistic historian who's trying to rid Israel of all of Canaan because that's why you're in exile, you might tweak that, right? Because that's bonkers crazy and, it's, and it's, it's, that's why we're in exile. So in Samuel, the guy's name is changed and it's Ish-Sobeth-Seth or something like that. And the translation is man of shame. You see what I'm saying? When we read the text, we have to remember it did not appear in a vacuum. It's a dance between humans and God. And somehow, sometimes we get just the faint outline of the God of this story. And sometimes we get the full deal in Jesus on the cross. And it's our job and our joy as people who follow Jesus to work with this text and to wrestle with it. Did you know that the name Israel actually means he who wrestles with people and with God and is not overcome. The very name of the people of God is about wrestling. Think Jacob, the hip. That's what it means to be God's people. 
So I want to invite you, I want to encourage you, you might be going, holy buckets, like, wow, deep into the pool, thanks for that. I get it, I totally get it, a lot to, lot to take in in one sitting. I want to invite you and encourage you, like, what, what's the takeaway, what's the so what? Hebrews chapter 1 says that Jesus is the exact representation of God. We follow Jesus. This community and the people of God in the world, the church, follows Jesus. And so when we come to texts like this and your friends who don't believe go, seriously, what is going on here? I want to suggest that you don't have to say, yeah, it's really kind of grotesque and barbaric, but I mean, God commanded it and so that's what God did and that's what God's like. But then it's like he's Jesus too. Come on. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a bad sale <laughs> and nobody's buying from you. Okay? Because that's crazy. Is there a way to affirm the God who's behind this story and the scriptures that tell the story? And I want to suggest that the answer is yes. Can I suggest and offer this metaphor of the shadow? That when we read things like that, look at Paul, Colossians 2, shadow. And always, 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 friends, we got to let this thing breathe. We got to let it sing from its own choir. We got to let it speak in its own voice because when we don't, I think we do terrible things to the text that were never intended to be done to it. And I think we miss the heart of God when we do that. And that for me is like game changer, big deal. Sometimes we come here and it's, uh, it's about hope and it's about life and it's about love and sometimes we come and it's about this is us broken and torn and so far from you, uh, so we never know what we're going to get. <laughs> and uh, this week uh, is a tough one, really hard, even for me, to, re- to press into this and to read and to try to understand. God, I pray that amidst this, that our love for you would not waver, that our pursuit of truth and who you are would not waver, that our commitment to following Jesus and to allowing the story of God as told in the scriptures to speak into our lives and to change us and to call us uh, into account as to who we are as the people of God. I pray, God, that our commitment to that would not waver. Would you, by your spirit, encourage, give life to the things that were of you today, God? I pray that they would have a big yes from you and the things that weren't, that, that I missed it on, God, would you just let them fall dead? I pray that they would have no life. Uh, it's you that we're after, Jesus. Lead us, we pray. Find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash community or on Twitter. Community. See you next time.